One of my favorite things to do is look at old pictures. Uh, that is sometimes in the form of books that I have that were of a much different youth group, same grade, different people. Uh, sometimes it's in the form of stacks of pictures. I have a number of stacks of old directory pictures, and uh, if you want a good laugh, it's good to peruse those pictures to see people, some of you here tonight, uh, in much younger versions of yourself. Uh, in fact, sometimes you don't have to go to my cabinet. You just look out there in the directory board. Look, like, whoa, that person is a teenager now. They're a baby in that picture. It's fun to look at memories of the past. Of course, time hop and Facebook timeline and, and memories and all of that give you the opportunity where you can do that really now on a daily basis and look at, oh, just this popped up in my feed this morning, uh, our vacation from last year. We had a little staycation and went around and... It was lots of fun, and it was kind of fun to relive those memories, to see how much we've changed in the course of a year. Uh, I like doing that. In fact, if I'm not careful, and I go into the Northside Photo Archive hunting for an old picture or uh, some appropriate picture for a a slide or something like that, uh, sometimes I'll just not find the one I'm looking for and, and become distracted by all of the old pictures from years ago. Uh, I call it picture distraction. It's easy to do because you get drawn into how much things have changed. Now, back a long time ago, we didn't have cell phones, and so they didn't go off, and that's one difference. Um, I don't know. The Sunday night crowd is just like, yeah, turn them all on. Okay. Change is a funny thing. Uh, No one likes it. And yet, it happens all the time. God designed our world to be a place of constant, consistent change. Isn't that beautiful? The seasons that God designed into our world make it so it's always something new. And certainly in Kansas, we know we might experience all four seasons in one week. That's the beautiful thing about God is that he keeps the variety within our world. He knows that just as we will grow and change, our world grows and change. Have you ever changed? You ever changed your friends? You ever changed your attitude? You ever changed your behaviors? You ever changed some aspect of your physical appearance? In that moment, you were, you were touching upon something that we're going to talk about tonight, how it is that Jesus never, ever left things the same. In fact, I have a a working theory uh, that if you want to tell if someone is under the control and the authority of Jesus Christ, you just simply need to look at his or her life and look very carefully to see if you notice any change happening. And if that person is walking with Jesus, then there absolutely will be. Because Jesus, in the pages of this book and within our own lives, never leaves a situation the same. Every situation he comes into, he changes it to something drastically better. Whether he was changing water to wine, whether he was giving a blind man his sight, 
whether he was changing common, ordinary fishermen to the great fishers of men, Jesus was all about this transformation process. Of course, we know that. We can look at the stories of the text. We're in the book of Luke, and um, I was just... Per- perusing through the pages right as the last song was being sung, looking at how many times Jesus changed things, starting in chapter 4, where he heals many. He heals a man with a demon. He calls the first disciples in chapter 5. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralyzed man, allowing him to walk. He called Levi from a tax collector's booth into repentance and to follow him. He changed the lives of the disciples. He took a man with a withered hand and changed it. He changed the 12 apostles. He changed the centurion's servant. He transformed every aspect of his ministry. He brought a widow's son from death to life. In every way, Jesus Seemingly in every story, there is a story of him changing. Even in chapter uh, 8, where he calms the storm and he heals the man with a demon. Uh, he heals the, the woman with the issue of blood and he raises Jairus' daughter. See, all of these remind us of the simple, fundamental, and yet powerful truth that everywhere Jesus goes, he never leaves the same. I was privileged and honored to be able to sponsor uh, the youth group on their mystery trip this last week, and, and Adam and Katie did a great job putting it together, organizing it, making it happen. really was a, a great weekend, and, and there was part of the weekend as we were traveling down there, we were on a, a, a bus, and uh, as Adam was making some announcements, he said, hey guys, remember as you get off the bus to leave it better than you found it. And I was, I I just knew you were in good hands because he understood not just what being a part of the Northside Youth Group is about, of course there's that high standard too, but what being a Christian is about. It wasn't that that Jesus left things better than he found them, it's that followers of Jesus leave things better than they found them, and more importantly, leave people better than they find them. We're going to look at this tonight in depth, in the story of Jesus, the longer we walk with him, the more transformation we see, but even more than that, the more transformation we experience. You should be able to look back in your own life and look back at your former self and think of things you have done and just cringe. Ah, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. If you can, that's a good sign. That means you're getting better. That means you're transforming into something far better than you were, and that's most assuredly evidence that you're walking with the Lord. Because he wants you to be better than you are. If you can think backwards, one, five, ten, twenty years ago, can you now extrapolate and think forward of how he is changing you and how he'll change you one, five, ten, twenty, thirty years from now, you'll be better because of your walk with Jesus. You'll be better because of Jesus himself. And if we not forget that, 
we can learn powerfully the lessons we have tonight. Tonight we look at two different stories of transformation and the implications for us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 37. I apologize, we're going to be in verse 28. Boy, that would just cut the sermon in half if I started verse 37, and you don't want that. Goodness, I apologize. Verse 28, Luke chapter 9. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes, his clothing became dazzling white. Now, the word here for dazzling is kind of special. I'll just stop and mention it. It is the only time in the New Testament where this word is used. And it, it is an ex, it's dazzling does not do it, do it justice. Um, the way I best describe it, after kind of doing some study on the word, we've been watching storms, right, for the past, what, two months? Um, and as you watch those storms, especially at night, and you watch the lightning, there, there are times in particular when you, the, the lightning, I mean, it's just, boom! It's just, and it, it's a, the visual, I mean, it's so bright and it's so powerful that it just literally uh, shakes your, your eyes and kind of, I mean, even before the thunder gets there, it's just that amazing. And that's this kind of dazzling, okay? So just so you get the picture, it became dazzling white. Whiter than any, than you can even begin to imagine. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared to him in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I want to key in that word departure there. That's a key one. Uh, now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said, Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And when they kept silent, they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here we are, about eight days after Peter's confession, the confession which we uh, studied in a previous lesson, was the, that you are the Christ of God. Now, I know Peter mentally understood that. I know he verbalized that, which tells us because the mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart, that he internalized that. But, G, but Peter had a face-to-face confrontation and a realization of what it meant that Jesus was the Christ of God that he was something far more than human, that he was there at the beginning. He preceded the beginning. He preceded all things. Indeed, as the scriptures go on to say in the New Testament, all things were created by him and for him. Peter, don't you know, is introduced to the man who he confessed in a far more powerful way than he had ever known him. This was a mountaintop moment with Jesus. And mountaintop moments are beautiful and cool, 
They are the place of high points in the journey. We know when we look at the Old Testament, there are many places where God acts and God works on a mountain. Whether he was, he was calling Abraham up a mountain to make a sacrifice, or possibly he was calling Moses up a mountain to deliver the law. Or maybe he's calling a youth group up a mountain to remind them of who they are and who God's called them to be. God uses mountains as a special, I mean, a literal geographical high point, and yet God himself will have to descend to that high. But he comes to that high point, that zenith, and this is where we are at the transfiguration. We are on a mountain, and no doubt, as you probably have experienced, as you, those of you who've been to team camp before, know the common experience around Thursday to Friday night is this. I really wish we could just stay here. Or you'll hear, man, we've just got to take everything we've got here and, and, and keep this when we go back down the mountain. And that's heard so many times toward the end of a camp, especially a mountaintop experience. But what happens? You get back down the mountain and you don't keep it with you, do you? So there's, something, there's something about being called up to a high place. And this is where Peter is. He's like, wow, this is so amazing. I've never seen anything like this. I've never experienced anything. I mean, he thought he knew Jesus, but now he's seeing who Jesus is and he's, he didn't want to let it go. We see this, we see this in so many times, especially in Peter's life. Mountaintop moments are usually the place where transformation begins because you're at a higher place than where you were. And you're in a, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, you're, you're supposed to be at a place closer to God, more focused on him and in that moment, God really begins to work, and he begins to show you things that you haven't seen and, and help you understand things that maybe you didn't understand and help mature you and grow you. If you've ever been to a, a valley moment, like when you're in the valley, of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you really begin to appreciate the mountaintop moments. I don't fault Peter at all for wanting to stay here, for not wanting to leave, for say, hey, let's just... This situation is so intense, let's just build three tents so we can stay in tents. See, I thought that joke would go over better. There's a few dads who got that, but, but this is exactly what's happening. This intense moment, Peter wanted to keep in tents. And this is exactly how Luke describes it. He tells them that, uh, or as he paints this picture, that, we see in this picture the transformation, the transfiguration of Christ. This is what Luke's describing is the transformation of Jesus. Now, if we'll go to the next slide. The, the, I told you I was going to draw your word, uh, attention back to the, this word in verse 31, who appeared in Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. I don't know if your footnote says it. The, the, the one in the Pew Bible here says, uh, uh, says that the Greek word means what they trans, translate as departure means exodus. So here's Jesus in this most powerful, shining, brilliant moment. 
And Moses and Elijah and Jesus are there. What are they discussing? What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus getting ready to leave. You got to think about this for just a second because it requires some some weird sort of thinking. So, so this is a mountaintop experience, right? We're at the top of the mountain, right? But then we're going to leave this moment and we're going to go down into the valley. We're going to go down into the darkness, especially as we get closer to Jerusalem. Okay, so for, from a human perspective, they were here. And they were going to be here. They were going to go down to where my elbows don't quite touch. Okay? Peter wanted to stay here. Jesus knew they couldn't stay here. They had to go to here. But if you flip, if you look down from heaven onto earth, that whole thing flips around. Mountaintop experiences inverted. And the shame of the cross is the mountaintop moment of heaven. They know that Jesus is headed up to glory through the cross, which to them looks like, a, from, from Peter and James and John, looks to their perspective like a downward journey. But Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about the exodus, about the exodus of him from earth back to heaven. So I... I, I thought that was kind of a cool picture. Maybe it dazzled me more than it dazzled you, but they view this journey differently. They're ready to stay on the mountain. Jesus is not. I, there's work to be done. We have to head back down the mountain. And we know ultimately that, that journey downward will lead to Jerusalem to a cross of shame, a criminal's cross where he will die alone and gasping for breath and rejected by every single person in heaven. Heaven views that as glory. Why? Because that was always the plan. They viewed the cross as a low moment, but Jesus views it, and the the heavenly host, I'm sure, view it much differently than they did, and even maybe as we do. The transfiguration of Jesus is something that is so... It's just hard to imagine. Uh, John, turn, turn with me to the book of Revelation written by John. Revelation chapter 1, there is this description of Jesus, which is the closest I can find in Scripture that gives us to what Jesus looked like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay? The, 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 the word meaning dazzling, which, again, I don't think fully gets it. Maybe John gives us a little bit more detail in Revelation chapter 1. Verses 13 through 15. Here is his mountaintop moment. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a long golden sash around his neck, around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. I mean, you get the sense that John's here seeing something that's so white and so pure and so bright that he can't even, he's kind of, like it's like, it's like wool, no, it's like snow. It's a, he's trying to think of the whitest, purest things he can imagine. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like a, the roar of many waters. Boom! Dazzling. I think the transfigured Christ was something far beyond words. John did the best that he could 
but, but we understand that what Jesus was in flesh was far from what he would be when he was finally, fully returned to that heavenly state. As they're around, Jesus is in this dazzling state. Moses and Elijah are talking about the departure. And I want you to turn back now to Luke. We'll stay within our, our book of focus. Luke chapter 24 and uh, verse, I think it's uh, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. It was now about the... And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, you remember he's in the resurrected form now. He's not in the fully transfigured form, but he, he's in a different form. He says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now look what he says here, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now, certainly... They were witnesses right then at that very moment. But I think this began all the way back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus allowed three of them to see him as no human being had heretofore or since seen Jesus. In that fully beautiful, powerful, dazzling, explosively white form where he is a heavenly appearance. And Jesus says, hey, this is what you saw. You've seen this. You know where I'm headed. And you know what I've called you to. Now, the disciples, of course, ever the disciples, what were they doing while all of this was happening with Moses and Elijah and Jesus? Obviously, they were asleep. But as soon, and I kind of think in my own mind, it does happen with the Clap of thunder, but scripture doesn't say that. That's just the revised Toby version. Uh, Very soon they are, and this is uh, verse 32, when they came, became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. They hear the voice of God. They see the transfigured Christ. They hear God, his father, saying, this is my son whom I love, my chosen one, listen to him. How similar does this sound to the voice of the Father all the way back at Jesus' baptism? Strikingly similar. Why is it, do you suppose, that God utters those words? We've got to take this in context here. Okay, first, Jesus, dazzling white. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. No doubt of where he's headed and where he's going and the, the plan of all eternity here. And then the disciples wake up and they see this. They see this thing that they've never seen. And, and Peter's like, man, this is awesome. Let's, let's just hang out here. Let's, I can build a tent here. You can build a tent here. We can build a tent here. And it would be great. We'll just never leave. See, they wanted to stay there. Moses and Elijah knew 
that Jesus, and Jesus knew that he wasn't called to stay there. He was called to leave. He was called to, to exit. This is what the, the answer to the question is. Peter says, hey, let's just hang out here. And as soon as he said that, this cloud comes over the whole situation. And they're struck, like, what is going on? And then they hear the voice from the cloud. And the cloud, the voice from the cloud says, this is my son, listen to him. In other words, I know you want to stay on the mountain, but my son knows exactly where he needs to go. And you don't understand that, so listen to him. Don't listen to yourselves. Don't come up with any, you know, development projects for, you know, for just hanging out there on the mountain. Listen to my son. You're not going to understand it, but if you listen to him, you'll fulfill the plan of the ages. They're rendered speechless, which is saying something for Peter. Um, And then they leave. No mountaintop moment lasts forever. There's a reason for the mountaintop moments, and that's where we get to in the second part of the story, verse 37. This is the transformation by Jesus. Verse 37. Now on the next day, when they had come down the mountain, a great crowd met him. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses so that he foams at at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and, and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. God never lets us stay on the mountain. The, 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 the best team camp, the best family camp, the best worship you've ever experienced, the best Bible study you've ever had, the best sermon you've ever heard, uh, the, the, the best moment in your life when you just feel like, man, God is with me and, and things are going great and, and I just love being here and I feel so connected with God. And those are great moments to have, don't misunderstand. But God never lets us stay there for long Because there's not just transformation that happens on the mountain. There's transformation that must happen within the valley. There is work to be done. And if we don't get off the mountaintop and get about the work being done, think about this from Jesus' perspective. What if Jesus had answered Peter? You know, Peter, that's a good idea. Why don't you just build me up a a, a nice tent here? Of course, you make it a little bit bigger than Moses's and certainly bigger than Elijah's. Uh, I'd be willing to say here, that'd be cool. And obviously, I wouldn't have to go to the cross. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous off its scale, but sometimes we forget. We get a little comfortable in the mountains a little too comfortable with, with, with witnessing glory and seeing God's power and getting a front row seat, and all that's cool. But God still had in mind a plan for a man and his son who were not up on the mountain. And had they stayed there on the mountain, the work wouldn't have been done in the valley. So as they descend... This crowd is waiting. 
Among the crowd is a man with an only son. It's kind of interesting. Luke is the only gospel that points out these people who have only children. I don't know if there's a purpose or reason in that, but but uh, Luke chapter uh, 7, verse 12, uh, the uh, widow of Nain's only son, chapter 7, verse 12 says, Jairus' daughter. I mean, we get this even from God himself. This is my only son. Okay, so there's something that Luke is pointing out here. Now, if you have children, you certainly understand the heartache you go through and the pain that you go through when your child is suffering or hurting. Um, a lot of you know about the, the, the Vic situation with Millie. And I happened to, to meet up with Robin at Chick-fil-A. I hadn't been there in a couple of hours, and I thought, oh, I'd go by. But uh, now Robin was there, and, and, and I could tell that his heart, his mind was engaged in the conversation, but his heart was with his daughter who was hurting. We get that. We understand that. That's all natural for all human parents to do. We don't want our children to hurt. Now imagine to, to a much greater degree having a son like this man has that no one can heal, that is possessed by something far greater than him, that no doctor can give remedy for. There is no ailment. There is no shot. There is no... Even these people who follow this rabbi who has done so much for so many people, even his closest disciples couldn't do anything for his own son. You know the pride you feel with your children? Whenever your son hits a baseball out of the park or your daughter does a cool gymnastics routine and gets a ribbon, or, 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 or they bring home a, a straight A or they get a high score on the ACT or SAT, you feel that pride because they're your son. But imagine this father now he has this has the son that all the other parents whisper about, that all the other people just shake their head. This is this is an embarrassment, and yet juxtaposed with this embarrassment is his deep love for his son. And so when you read through the text, you get this sense of urgency. I beg you, look at my son. He is my only child. And a spirit seizes him. It convulses him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. From the ESV here, you especially get the sense of a, of a heartbroken father who is at his wit's end. He does not know what to do. And it goes to the only man who could possibly make a transformation in his son. Transformation may mean something to you. But let me tell you, if you're a parent who's ever experienced having a a child go through more than just physical pain or illness, but going through a spiritual journey where they hit rock bottom, and you weep, and you beg God, and you pray for an answer, if you've been here, not just yourself, but with your child, you understand the agony that this man is going through. These are not just words on a page. This is his son, and this is his only son, and he's lost all hope for hope, for change, for transformation. But the, the son, he's under the control of something far greater than him. He's got a spirit that takes control of his body and his voice and his his physical gestures. This is something more, you see, than just epilepsy or seizures. This is something that's otherworldly. 
This is beyond medical explanation. Something else drives this, and he, he never gets a break. Imagine your son or daughter being there, and imagine how you would feel coming to Jesus, the desperation in your voice, the brokenness in your heart, the, 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 the despair of just knowing, if this guy can't, if this guy can't do anything, what am I, what do I do? Despite their authority, despite what Jesus had given them the authority to do just a couple of chapters, they couldn't drive this one out because they didn't have enough faith. I don't know, because this one was a, a, an extra level of toughness. Jesus seems to say, oh, faithless and twisted generation. He, he seems to be chastising them for their lack of faith, their lack of understanding. I, hard to say why it was that these disciples in this situation, the scriptures don't tell us why they couldn't. Drive it out. And so Jesus does what only Jesus can do. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back. And I don't think it was just saying, here's your son. I think Luke's obviously saying, he gave this man his son back. Because now, don't you know, when they left, the father and son could have a conversation. That that night they would share a meal together. That they, they would be able to enjoy the relationship of a father to a son. Jesus gave this man a gift that no one else had to that point been able to give. Transformation astonished everyone who was there. All who were there astonished at the majesty of God. Who all was there? The disciples, the dad, the crowd, no doubt the whispering, shaking heads. But they all witnessed, they saw something. They didn't just see the transformation of Jesus. They saw the transformation by Jesus. And I have no doubt that Peter and James and John told stories about the, you know, remember going up the mountain and Moses and a lot. Peter, remember you talking about the tents? What were you? That was crazy. But, but I bet they never forgot the transformation that they saw by Jesus. And for those who had seen it many times, they were like, oh, he did it again. But for that dad, maybe he had never experienced that. And Jesus gives back to this father his son. He saw the transformation in a, a way that is just it's beautiful. May we consider then the, these two powerful stories of transformation and transfiguration. And may we apply them to our lives so that we might live as transformed people. We're, we're called to be transformed, to be changed Jesus was both transformed and transformer. He was the one in the beginning of the story who was changed, and yet throughout the story, he's the one that does the changing. And so, especially if you're here tonight and you, you feel helpless and in despair in a sin you can't get out of, in, 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 in stuff that you're just bogged down with, you, need a, you don't need, just need a change, you need a transformation which only comes through a transformer. 
For that, I point you to Jesus. He is by nature. He is by nature one that changes. I, I mean, I realize that God is consistent. Don't get me wrong. But, but, but God's power is always transformative when it's displayed. And so even when he sets apart creation, we have summer and fall and winter and spring because he's consistently changing and transforming. Which leads us to that conclusion that if you are with Jesus, you are not the same. You're not the same today as you were yesterday, and you certainly will not be the same tomorrow. You'll be transformed, transfigured, changed, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. He says, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation means living a non-conforming life. It means living a life that is okay with being like you were made for a different world. Like you are being transformed into something far better. Like this world was not meant to hold you. Are you living a transformed life? Is how you think any differently now that you're walking with Jesus? Is how you act any differently now that you walk with Jesus? Are the shows that you watch any different because you're walking with Jesus? Or do you, you watch the same junk that the world watches? Do you talk any differently? Do you treat people any differently? You should. Not because of you, not because of your great efforts, but because of his transformation in you. We should continually be about the process of transformation. Another way to put it is, butterflies don't much hang out with caterpillars or think in caterpillar ways or talk like caterpillars because they've transformed into something far greater, far better than what they could have ever imagined as a caterpillar. Are you living a life transformed is the question for you tonight. Not just by the will of God, but being transformed to the will of God. If you're not living a transformed life, indeed, I'll just put it to you directly. If you haven't seen much transformation in your life, if we had to do a side-by-side comparison with how you think, with how you talk, with what you watch, with what you, how you treat other people, in the way you live life in general, would we find much difference between you and a non-Christian or an atheist? If there's no difference, there's no transformation, and that's a problem. If you need transformation, however, the danger is we think, oh, it all comes from me. It's all about behavior modification. If I can just will myself enough to do the right thing and do it all by myself, then I'll get there. Uh, That's just as dangerous. True transformation in both of these stories tonight came from Jesus. 
And it's the same with us. If you want to be not just changed in your behavior, but transformed in how you live, it means walking with Jesus. It means doing what the young lady did this morning by, by beginning that journey and living in full submission and obedience to him. And as you do that, you trust and you, you obey. You trust and you obey, and then you act. You trust, you obey, you act. And each step of the way, he transforms you into something far, far better than you were. If you are ready to begin living a transformed life, you can begin that journey tonight. But if, if possibly you would claim to be with Jesus, and yet your life looks remarkably unlike it, maybe transformation needs to begin in you by repenting, by leaving behind sin, and by beginning again to let Jesus transform your old hard heart into something far greater than you ever imagined. Tonight, if you need to begin that journey of transformation, you need to begin to let him change you from the inside out, from the earthly to the ethereal, that can happen this very moment. If you're ready, if you have a need of any type, let us pray with you and for you. I'll meet you down front. If you have a need, please come as together we stand and sing.